Welcome to Black and White, a place where we educate, advocate and amplify Indigenous knowledges, ways of being and thinking. It is an opportunity to bridge the gap and translate between two worlds, initially for educators but more importantly allies and people who want to listen, learn, unlearn and relearn. A place that removes fear and answers those questions one is afraid to ask where we walk together on a learning journey. Bayajul Budri Yagaragu Yora Yora Nura Burang Bayajul Budri Yagaragu Burangad Burani Yagu Barubagu Yoragu Bayajul Budri Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Yora Noragu Bimal Wayangagu I speak well of the Yagara people the people belonging to this country where we record the podcast. I speak well of the old ones, past, present and the future people. I speak well of my elders, of my ancestors, of the Darug people, as well as all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people towards country and Mother Earth. I acknowledge and I recognise all Indigenous people across the world. Welcome back to Black and White. It's been a long time between episodes, um, super busy, overseas, back again, Christmas days, just been and gone, but finally recording another episode. Um, I'm Nathan, got Tammy with me, how are you Tammy? Warami, or hello, Budri Bea Junya Yago, good to speak to you today. I'm pretty good. Yeah, this is uh, season two kicking off. We did our first season... Um, over the last six months, had a bit of a break as we knew we were relocating overseas temporarily. Yeah. Came yeah. back to the festive season, right? Yeah, it's been just super hot here. Um, I think we got back around the 1st of December and there hasn't been a day under 32, I reckon, 32 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been super hot, but yeah, back into it again. Um, so I so to kick off about the time overseas, how, how was your time there, like how did you feel about it and how, how it all went? I um, guess we should probably backpedal a little bit because a lot of our listeners may not know why we moved overseas, what we are doing, that sort of thing, how's that sound? Yeah, it's fine. Um, so for those of you who uh, don't know our story... I guess I am an ex-deputy uh, principal and um, being an Indigenous woman, a Darug woman from Sydney area, I am very passionate, always have been, about embedding Indigenous perspectives and knowledges. Um, however, after 15 plus, with the emphasis on plus, years in educational leadership, I took a jump out probably a year and a bit ago now of the system. Would that be about right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, had been a consultant for a different company first and then have stepped out this year. So as part of that, I guess, I was fortunate enough to work with a Canadian client who wanted to custom design a leadership program for its Indigenous people so that they can advance through their organisation. So this is not education 
system over there, it's, it's an actual private organisation. And so I've been working on that uh, project for some time now and then it came to the launch and launching particularly the uh, workshop components and that meant we relocated for a couple of months, didn't we? Yeah, we did. So, um, yeah, you worked and I, I didn't do much of anything, to be honest. Oh, you, you homeschooled the kids and yeah. did bits and pieces here and there. That's hey? a loose term. But that's <laughs> more like a lot of excursions and a lot of fighting. Um, that's on the kids' part. Yeah, our son. But yeah, um, kicking and screaming every day, trying to get him to do some work. But, uh, you know, learned a lot more through just... Uh, seeing and doing rather than sitting in a classroom just learning from a textbook I suppose so yeah yeah it yeah. was good so we were based in Toronto or um, most people would know Toronto as T-R-R-O-N-T-O but the traditional um, spelling of that is T-K-A-R-O-N-T-O so that's the traditional name of it yeah um, and what, what's the the wider North America is known as Turtle, Turtle Island. Yeah. yeah, so you'll hear us sort of reference Turtle Island a little bit, and that's that's North America. So if you can envision in your mind the continent, and if you turn it slightly onto our diagonal, you'll see the actual landmass turns into the shape of a turtle, and that's how it got its name, Turtle Island. But I've never heard, I've never heard the term Turtle Island until a year ago, like it did when I started using it. Yeah, well, like it, was, was it, it was it prevalent before that, or yeah, it's it's always been known as its traditional name. I guess it was mainly known through um, the indigenous circles as Turtle Island, but uh, I guess it's becoming more and more common to reference it that way. I think it's one of those things as I've developed my own knowledge, um, I take it for granted what I know and how I just use these terms so fluently but don't realise that people don't understand. Um, yeah. So it's something that, you know, it's really good to have when I, we talk about it because you're like, hang on a minute, what does that mean or what is that? Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, we ventured right through Turtle Island, um, not only, you know, for work, my work, but also really trying to understand its history, its place, and um, the traditional owners of that territory or that, that, those nations, I should yeah. say. Hey. So I guess we were based in Toronto, but we explored probably a fair bit of Ontario, yeah. didn't we? And then we ventured into Quebec, um, and I obviously worked in Nunavut Territory. So for people who don't know where Nunavut Territory is, if you imagine uh, Ottawa City, you fly north about four and a half hours. That's the um, capital of Nunavut territory, which is a Calouet. And then I flew north again about another hour and a half, two hours for where I worked. Yep. So I was operating in about oh, negative temperatures. It was warm up there at the time, um, minus 25 plus wind chill, I would say. And then um, you were, what were you in, in Toronto? What oh, was your temperature? Pretty, it was pretty warm. 
uh, for that time of year. But I mean, we left end of November, beginning of December, and it, we were still having days around nine, ten degrees in Toronto. So that that to me was shorts and shirt weather, mm. and a pair of thongs slash sandals, jandals, whatever you call it. Flip flops. Yeah, those things. Um, so yeah, for me it was it was warm, but I mean uh, Toronto people are a bit soft. They still they they don't change their clothes. They wear the same attire whether it's thirteen degrees or minus thirteen, which is really bizarre to me. Because you hop in the shopping centre and it's like twenty four degrees because it's got the heaters going. So I can't I can't even wear a jumper in the shops. Yet these people are walking around in these big jumpers that are made from minus 25 degrees I, I don't know how they do it but yeah it's it's really bizarre but um yeah no it was it was it was still warm over there i suppose there's a little bit of a reference to global warming maybe because they haven't had any snow either which is super interesting um it's quite unheard of for toronto isn't it particularly yeah. at christmas time and that to this point they still haven't had any snow that's stuck to the ground yeah it's it's it was quite warm there when we were there, so that was good. Um, bit big city, but big concrete sort of jungle, a very dense. So in ways, good because it's dense. I like density because you're not destroying the rest of the land. Yeah. Um, but then bad because it's a lot of concrete, obviously. So, but yeah, once you get, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes out you start to get into the countryside, but it's super flat. There's no mountains there, which I didn't read anything about Toronto or Ontario. So I was expecting mountains and all sorts of stuff and there was just nothing. Yeah. So it's quite flat. Um, yeah, which was, which was different. And then I experienced the opposite, you know, I, when I was traveling for work, um, I obviously, had to venture a number of flights uh, to get to where I needed to be. And I think over the two months I counted up, it was 22 flights yeah. in two months. Um, but there was, I was caught in a snowstorm first, um, got the pleasure or I don't know, uncomfortability of having an emergency landing in uh, Callaway which was something I could have done without experiencing, but um, that was yeah. interesting for a white knuckle flyer like myself. Um, and it's very picturesque, it's, it's mountainous, but there's beautiful lakes, um, lots of ice, lots of snow, um, crystal clear, and I guess untouched land up in none of it. So yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. And then I got caught in a blizzard, which was a code red blizzard, which basically means uh, bunker down, nobody's moving out of their, their buildings um, because of visibility, because of the winds, um, yeah, lots of lots of reasons, but yeah. that, that was an experience for yeah. sure. So, so I guess... Yeah, well, I was going to say, so while we were there, there was heaps of stuff happened, I suppose. We had that referendum, mm. we had... Um, well, we just missed um, their reconciliation week, essentially when we came in, but we still felt and saw a lot of the rem remnants of Orange Shirt Day, which is about um, Every Child Matters. Um, yep. Basically, it's formed out of the 
residential school system. I guess we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, yeah. What else do we see? Um, yeah, well, well, they had the referendum while we were there, I suppose. And um, spoiler alert, I didn't even vote. Um, not because I didn't want to, um, but there wasn't really... It wasn't really set up very well, I didn't reckon, but... So, for, for me to vote, oh, we landed in Los Angeles. I don't know if I could have voted before I left, I'm not too sure. Probably could have, but just lazy or didn't, didn't really think about it, but... Got to Los Angeles and the only place I could vote, um, especially in that traffic there, was like an hour and a half, two hour drive across the other side of Los Angeles. So we were down in Newport Beach. Taylor was bowling there, played the US Bowls Championships. Um, and yeah, to get across was like a dead set two hour drive to the embassy, I think it was. I don't know. It might have been the embassy, wherever, wherever voting was taking place. So... Looking at the polls and everything, I was like, well, I'm not going to waste my time driving across town. Like, seriously, because to me, the whole referendum was just, just a setup. Um, it was never going to get up based on how it had to happen. Like, I think it was 60% of the vote, plus two thirds of the states had to agree. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Going off the polls and what everyone was saying, there was just no way that was going to happen. Um, but also the constitution is set up in a way where you, it had to be the double whammy in the fact that they had to win the majority states and they had to win majority votes. And so you're basically set up to fail. And there's yeah, well, a the referendums haven't got up really. Correct. Like, I don't yeah. know how many it is, a couple of 10 out of so many, 56, whatever yeah. the number is, it's it's very small. It's like 5% of referendums probably get up. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I guess what I was taken back by, you know, to be Indigenous in Australia prior to the referendum was really, really hard. Um, you would not believe the amount of racism and comments, derogatory comments that were directed towards you and even at times when I was with our kids, you know, and um, people felt and continue to f feel, um, even post-referendum, I guess, that they have a right to voice their opinion on um, Indigenous Australia, regardless of whether it's hurtful, harmful or not productive. Yeah, I'm the, the only one positive that came out of it maybe is I mean America don't give a shit about Australia to be honest anyway there's nothing on the news about us but I, I, I do have to say the Americans and the Canadians were actually asking about the referendum oh yeah they were, yeah. so they actually knew about it which surprised me and they felt bad for Australia that as a nation we couldn't advance I, um, I think yeah. I was quite taken aback by how well, I was quite moved by how the Americans and the Canadians contacted us to check if we were okay, knowing that, you know, we're Indigenous, knowing that... Not you, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what it was this, it was this empathy and, um, I guess, disbelief. They were quite saddened by the, yeah. the state of the world, I suppose. Which is, that's everywhere at the moment, we've got this fighting... 
overseas between multiple countries and yeah yeah it's just ridiculous but there was positive and i think we need to you know acknowledge that the number of allies that stood up um i was quite vocal whilst over there going well you know we had all of these individuals who stood up and acknowledged the fact that they are supportive of indigenous australia and and our histories but it's one thing to voice that opinion vote that opinion but now post-referendum what are you going to do with that you know how does an ally continue that work and you know it, it just doesn't stop at the voice and and saying yes i vote yes um so for me, it was post-referendum, now what? What does that look like? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I, everything's gone quiet here now, so I'm not too sure and, what you the know, next step is. Shout out also to our Maori um, brothers and sisters in Aotearoa who are going through their own challenges at the moment where they've had a change of government and unfortunately the majority government um, that has the power is starting to dial back the clock around their support of uh, the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People and, and what does that mean um, for them. So big shout out and Mari Nubaj, um, big love to you across the ditch. Oh, I don't know, I don't know much about what's happening there. Uh, the only thing I heard was something about them was there a ban on cigarettes or something? I think they were going to be the first country to ban cigarettes or tobacco altogether and this new government's come in and within a couple of days just wound it back. So, I mean, the banning of cigarettes and tobacco is, I believe, like Indigenous people here, that because of they were force-fed um, alcohol, and, and probably tobacco to a degree, like drugs and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. There's a systemic problem with that. So I think the government there was trying to ban it altogether. For me, that's a great move because it gets rid of that issue. Um, I know there'll be illegal issues underneath that, people trying to sell it illegally, but it's a good step to get rid of it so the next generation doesn't have to deal with that problem. Mm. But it's been wound back already. Yeah, so, there's, a, there's yeah. a number of things. There I, even, I don't know what to do. We'd probably to do with money as usual, but... But they're even talking about um, looking at the treaty again. And, like, it, it's just incredible that here we've got a nation who was really quite um, well-leading in, in its support and action for Indigenous people globally. Um, but... It, we're now having discussions, and I and I guess this all sort of relates back to the referendum, you know, yeah. across the ditch here in Australia, where there's this, I guess, surge of support against Indigenous people and the rights of Indigenous people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this isn't just... And I guess this sort of, like, goes into what we wanted to talk about uh, today was around those learnings from abroad and particularly around Indigenous perspectives and knowledges. But this isn't just an Australian issue or a New Zealand issue, Aotearoa. It's, it's globally an issue. And I know a friend of mine, a juraman, a sister, um, a Métis woman, you know, was at a conference, the, um, the one in Copenhagen, not Copenhagen, um, Dubai, sorry, COP. And an individual made the comment, you know, I'm not going to bother um, dealing with that Indigenous 
uh, stuff in Australia, there's only 3% of them. So who, you know, what a waste of time and who cares? Now, this individual is a position of power and um, actually operating uh, in Noongar country um, as a business. So there's still a lot of, I guess, negative attitudes out there around Indigenous people across the world. And um, the, there's a lot of, I guess, scared individuals around taking that step. Would you agree? Yeah, that, that's, that's everything like that. It's, you hold a conference in Dubai, I mean, what's going to happen there? That's, that's just about money and oil, isn't it? Mm. Like, that's not... You yeah. ain't getting too much out of that. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know what that was supposed to be about because I didn't. I didn't do any research. Climate change. Okay. Right climate yeah. change. Okay. Well, why the hell would you go to Dubai for climate change? Like seriously, most people don't give a shit about that. Mm. That's money and oils. That that's all they're worried about. So I don't think much is going to change there. So, holding it. Holding a, a summit there. So I guess when we're over in um, Turtle Island, we did visit a number of places. Um, particularly cultural significant places was there any one particular space that you really connected with or was taken uh, aback by oh we went to the in Quebec City um, downtown is very European because it's French dominated mm. there's some war there Abraham's plains is like um, kilometres of just untapped unbuilt on land there was a fight uh, i think it was between the french and english English. yeah um so for those people that don't know quebec is a bilingual city so very french and uh, french dominant but english speaking as well but the first language is very much french isn't it yeah once you get 10 minutes out of the city it's just french pure french you can't we went to a fast food restaurant and they didn't speak any English at all. No. That was 10 minutes out of downtown Quebec City. But um, yeah, there's Plains of Abraham. There's a fight between the English and the French. I think the French had the land originally. That's why it's still French dominated there. But well, they, they've taken t- it off the. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say they've taken it off the indigenous people there. But um, that's not that, you know, that was interesting. But we saw, yeah, 10 minutes out of the city. The Wendat people? Yeah, the Wendat yeah. Cultural Centre. Yeah. So they'd built... Um, oh, Longhouse, wasn't it? Yeah, it's called the Longhouse. It's pretty amazing engineering at the time. Like, it, sort of imagine an, an igloo, but built out of timber. Um, and longer and higher. It's like a, if, if our listeners can envision, it's like a oval sort of um, long house. Like yeah. a, it's a, um, like a oval dome yeah, built out of yeah. wooden bark, You'd isn't have it? three or four families that would stay in there that have fires going down the bottom. They'd hang their meat up. Um, they'd use animal skins for blankets and... Yeah, and around the outside, they'd built like a fortress and um, sharpened bits of, not timber, but logs that were sharpened at the top and would protect them from wind and enemies. They'd built a fort so they could see out. Um, but what was really interesting was 
the, the ingenuity in that design and, and then obviously the lifestyle, which we'll talk a little bit more about, but it was built in a way that it camouflaged into its surrounds. Yeah. And nobody would know where the entry was. And so in this Wendat Cultural um, Centre, we've got an untouched, for the most part, longhouse. Yeah. And we got to walk inside it and experience what it is like. They actually do do um, activities there. They do sleep outs in the longhouse, the whole lot. But oh, yeah, you can sleep in it. I could feel a sense of, um, you know, community and probably connection if you... We're in there with other families because the fires were the central part of the. There was like three fires yeah, down so the, you would the sit guts around, of the home. You would sit around that, mm. obviously like the indigenous people did, but here with um, with the yarning circles, so that brought a sense of um, I suppose culture and being together. Yeah. And, and there's quite a few, um, I guess, parallels to the indigenous people of Turtle Island um, and, and Australia and from what I know about um, the Maori culture as well but yeah those longhouses housed around a hundred people which is incredible well, you could, yeah I think I think a little bit less but you could help you could house three or four families Possibly. And when we say 60, families... It d- d- depends on... Yeah. But we're not talking nuclear families as in mum, dad and kids. We're talking extended families. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was extended, yeah. Where every every individual had a role and a purpose. Um, they, the Ashinabe people of that area used to barter items like furs and so did, you know, um, the people up in Nunavut territory. That was massive, the fur trading of the different animals um but the Ashinabe people also did the same and you know even down to memory beads and they were like our message sticks that we have in australia that was passed up and down um, the coastlines um but it was really interesting also the political structure that we we learnt of where there was you know your peace chiefs who were like mediators like there was a clan mother that spoke for the women um, and then there was a council where that you know basically the representatives of the different families came together and it, it wasn't coercive of any kind it was you know what what does the majority sort of say how do we talk through to a solution um, there was no dominance per se no um, so I found that really really in- interesting but you know that the local animals at the time were that your bears your foxes um, and they used the furs and the like for warmth and clothing. Um, the meat was eaten as well, and like you said, it was dried and hung up. Yeah. Um, but even inside this longhouse was what was there three tiers? Yeah, you just don't sleep on the top tier because of the smoke yeah. and the fires. But that's where they used to hang their meat. Yeah. So for the the yeah. smoking and whatnot. And it was it was really warm in there. Like it was I don't know minus two or three in Quebec City when we were there. It didn't feel that inside. No, inside there yeah, was at least 15, yeah. 16 degrees at least. I, and the woods they selected as part of the construction of the longhouse was the cedar and the hemlock because it's um, rot resistant. But also, um, you know, they, they used the birch bark and the local resins for their canoe constructions that they used to, you know, acquire the different... Um, 
fish to eat from the lakes and the waters and the rivers there, didn't they? Yeah. You know, it was it was really uh, um, a quite an interesting place, but I felt it was quite a spiritual place as well. Um, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Lo- lots of energy there, I guess, was um, one yeah. way to describe it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that stuck with me as well. What other things did you notice about indigenous perspectives in general whilst on Turtle Island? Um, perspectives. Or just seeing or the presence of Yeah, I mean, we indigeneity. went to a couple of games. We went to hockey, Maple Leafs, Kings game. Um, they do the same as we do here. They call it a land acknowledgement, though, yeah. don't they? Yeah, so they do that. There is the same same thing happens there. Um, so we say acknowledgement of country, and we reference country with a capital C, um, but the same, 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 but different is they reference land. Yeah. Yeah. So they reference the land. Did the same with the basketball. They had an Indigenous week there. It's a half time. They did a, a drum thing, which was traditional, I suppose, to their their land. Mm-hmm. Um, so we saw that. So they they have the same principles as what we do. Yeah. And, and even um, in Toronto, there was you know we, there was medicine wheels. You know, for those who have travelled, it's it's the red, white, yellow, um, and black circle and. You know, it comes down to yeah. what are the medicines of the people in the local area and um, how they're utilised. Um, but in the heart of the city, that there was a space there, wasn't there? Um, yeah. And they're now ice skating in that same space, but there's an Indigenous garden. Oh, yeah, I think they're going to build something there too. Yeah, um, to commemorate the residential schools and yeah. um, the destruction left by that. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be as much... There probably is, but I didn't see it as much fighting as what we have here. Um, they're a little bit more accepting yeah, over there. Absolutely. And I guess that was the big thing I took away was there's this acceptance of their own history um, and how negative the residential schools were, which is very similar to our stolen generation. Yeah. Um, you know, they've not long discovered mass graves, you know, hundreds upon hundreds, um, thousands of uh, Indigenous people who have or, or were killed as part of that school system. Yeah. Um, and so they're moving through, I guess, that journey towards inclusion rather than still accepting the history, which was the big thing for me. Yeah. Um, in comparison to ours, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's funny over there too. Like you've got the weather, which is obviously a lot colder, but uh, I don't know. Everyone seems to be outside, and emphasis a bit more on um, lifestyle. Being f- lifestyle, yeah, being a bit fitter. Not fit. They're not fit. Like they're, they're like us, you know. But they. They have access to stuff. I noticed, like, just going to the track, like, they have an indoor track there. We don't have indoor tracks in Australia to run on. But the University of York, I think it's run by the the city, anyway. It was... Um, so here, if you go to the track, it's, like, six bucks. 
every time. It's like you spend an hour there train you know, with Indy and um, yeah, it cost me six bucks. So if I went there two or three times a week, you're looking at twenty dollars nearly each over there. Mind you, we haven't done that across the whole season, really. <laughs> no, 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 I mean I'm not yeah. doing that. But I was saying, if you're a, if you're semi-professional or whatever, yeah. you know, not being funded over here at all, you're looking at I don't know. You could be looking at twenty-five, thirty dollars a week to go to the track just mm. to train. Well, over there it was eighteen dollars for a month, unlimited. And that gave you access to an indoor track. That was for an adult. For an adult. Indoor track, access to everything. There's three weight rooms in there. So you don't even have to have a gym membership. Here you'd have to have a gym membership as well. So the access to stuff was a, for well-being, yeah. I found was a bit better. And that connection with the land, you know, was constant. Yeah. Um, getting outside in the fresh air and, and connecting there. But also, you know where I travelled up in Nunavut territory, it's it's the hunting and while some of that is a means of necessity and survival and still eating traditional foods, a lot of that is around health and wellness and um, connecting to the land, connecting to the traditions of ancestors and your own cultural practices as well. Yeah. Um, but that was quite normal, wasn't it? Oh yeah, no, it's definitely normalized over there yeah i don't know just someone we said to me over there that they thought australians were the fittest and thinnest country in the world and i said oh that's couldn't be further from the truth i said that we're becoming the most obese if not we're in the top five obese countries in the world that was shock i said that's it's impossible all the images they get all they see from australia is uh the beaches. Bondi Beach, like yeah. men and women on Bondi Beach and um, this super fit, like, you know, bad analogy, but Steve Irwin types that are just out there wrangling crocodiles. And and I said, no, then I had to Google it and said, look how look how obese Australia is. Yeah. She's, she's like, well, how did they get like that? Yeah. I'm like, well, just bad influences and everything's probably money driven now you've got no time to spend on your well-being no and so that is very much prioritized as is um you know that engagement of indigenous people as well it's bad eating here too like it's cheaper to go to mcdonald's than it is to to eat stuff so indigenous people didn't have that problem no. 200 years ago you're not lived off the land and yeah, you know, eating did seafood well. and kangaroo and <laughs> whatever else you're eating berries and stuff well we had a traditional uh meal uh, not entirely traditional a, a contemporary take on traditional eating uh in toronto we went up to the cnn tower and had a uh indigenous what we would call bush tucker meal yeah uh, for your birthday didn't we yeah which was really good you tried arctic char yeah arctic char which is a fish, I should add. Um, very traditional or very um, native to the north. Um, basically, when they reference the north there, it's uh, above 60 degrees. Uh, is it longitude or latitude? Anyway. No, oh, they're above. basketball team, Toronto Raptors. The slogan's, we the north. Yeah. So, yeah. But I have tried the Arctic char in none of it, up in uh, Callowit, and... It is phenomenal. Like yeah. 
the quality of food direct from the land is incredible. I did also try caribou balls. Yep. Um, you know, caribou, if anyone doesn't know what that is, think, you know, kind of reindeer-like animal. Yeah, okay. Um, that was interesting. Uh, they doused it with berry compote, which um, I guess tarted it up a little bit in terms of flavour. Yeah. But um, there was something beautiful. I was uh, working at the time and saw one of the cultural advisors or the elders in residence as we would refer to them here and uh, they were just eating dried caribou straight off the bone with a hacksaw sort of knife and yarning it out. Yeah. Um, very similar um, I guess ways of being that we have here. Yeah. The, the one thing that I learnt um, is the value of myself as a bridge and other people who are allies, particularly Indigenous people, um, particularly educators, who get to be the bridge between these organisations, these businesses, these schools, as well as understanding what the other side or the other party, such as Indigenous people, are experiencing. And, you know, while I'm talking Indigenous, what we're really talking about, um, you know, by the buzzword standards are the diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI and, you know, you can add gender in there if you want as well. But it's that really, and this is what we experience probably more in Turtle Island than what we do back home, is that support for the development of relationships between the two parties, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Yeah. And, um, how myself as a, as a translator, I guess, between the two, but have that sort of empathy and understanding that the little things matters. And this is that leadership, I guess, we talk about when we talk about allyship. Yeah. Where you as a leader have the ability to allow everyone to be seen, heard and valued. Yeah. And... Um, I guess I saw that in action more in Turtle Island for the Indigenous people than what I did here. Yeah. And by all means, they don't have all the answers. Don't don't get me wrong. There's still the discussions around, you know, the deficit of effects and gaps in systems, the lack of privilege and opportunity, um, the ways to engage better. There's still all those discussions so but do, you, do you think you made a difference over there yes and continue to you know my project hasn't finished yeah um i guess what, so what, I, what my other question then is what and people are probably wondering is why are you over there making a difference and not here making a difference well i guess turtle island and the companies over there are more committed um to having those uncomfortable conversations and then backing it up with action yeah so you're working for a mining company well not you're not you're not directly working for them but it's for a mining company those mining companies here are not having those questions i I think it looks different um i think you know there's, there's different systems and policies or processes in place in different areas of the world that support that you know we've spoken before about the Inuit Impact Benefit Agreement and how that differs to the RAP or the Reconciliation Action Plan. But also, I think that 
we're still stuck in this cycle of you know accepting but not accepting our history as a nation uh, you know this land that we call australia and tokenism and rolling out the indigenous stuff during you know the dates of significance and we can sort of do a podcast about what those dates of significance are and why later but between that between doing some indigenous artwork and you know ticking a box for compliance as a whole and this is a generalization there is more action and strategy being done in turtle island than what there is in australia yeah um i think as an as a nation, um, as you know, what we call Australia, we can accept other histories more around the world we accept, better than we what we accept the, our own. We accept the Second World War and I don't know how many Jewish people, people got killed in jail, 11, mm. 12 million people. We accept that, but we can't accept what happened previously which was only 100 years before 150 years before that yeah so yeah and i guess this is the thing right i think we are brought up taught about what did colonization look like in australia it was a penal colony that evolved right basically because they ran out of space from jails in um england yeah and the Americas at the time went, no, you're not coming here. We don't want that. Well, so they went a bit further afield. Yeah. But the reality is that path to colonization was very similar right around the world. Just the timing different. So, you know, none of it territory experienced the same issues as what we have here, but just at a different rate or time. And it was what's at the heart of all of these um i guess uh stolen lands and, and um pushing out or massacring the indigenous people is control and um consumerism and capitalism and power right yeah but it happened everywhere in the world not just australia and we're not taught that I didn't even know it happened in America. I, I didn't realise the English, the Eastern Seaboard there. Are you talking about Canada? No, I'm talking or, about America. Oh, America, yeah. Which I thought America wouldn't stand for any of this, but the English back in the day had a stronghold on that, I think, New York, mm. whole strip down there. And something happened and um, with the Americans and the English, and America said, we're not standing for that. And basically, I don't know this the story, so I probably shouldn't be speaking about it. But America's reclaimed that or pushed them out somehow. And yeah, that that was all English. The English had taken all that land, mm-hmm. and all. But originally, it was Indigenous people's land. Yeah. So you know, we're we're talking the same thing up in the north. Um, it was the Hudson Bay Company um, that that really was the political power that came in and tried to take over trade and then, you know, over hunted and did the same thing and destroyed the land. So I guess no matter where we are in the world, you need to understand this is not just an Australia thing. It's 
a path to colonization and I really I often talk about this fear of saying the word colonization because it gives a pain in post in a lot of people's stomachs where it shouldn't it's the fact and it's not just an Australian thing you know we, we really should be looking at the way we do things and um, I guess the way we process things now to unpack and unravel what no longer serves us and that's the decolonization it's about reflection and i think the canadians not so much the the americans are further along that track or that cultural journey than what we in australia are yeah yeah definitely definitely right um so i guess what what are the takeaways it's that that journey towards inclusion and engagement with Indigenous people is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. You know, I think we've said that before, but there seems to be more commitment to the marathon over there. Like, I, I went to a school up in Akalawit as well, which was a really special experience. It, it definitely does not look like a school from the outside. It looks like a big dome. Um, building and then you walk in and it's hallways and classrooms and the behaviors are exactly the same that we're you know dealing with back home as what we are over there there's the you know the same posters but there's a different level of engagement with language and I know right across our our travels we were able to see different indigenous and traditional languages in terms of bookstores and bookshops and and being visually more in our face even um on the west coast up in uh squamish sort of in that town along the skeeter sky highway all the signs are bilingual it's traditional language and yeah. the english you know just all these little things of level of acceptance is far higher or further than what we are yeah, back I think, here. yeah they've got all that underneath or on top of the names we know everything by now is the indigenous name written um, underneath or yeah or above it. Yeah. So it's it's everywhere over there. We don't have that here at all. No, and no, we don't. Um, and and while there's there's still this notion or attitude of you know the indigenous people are quite primitive. That that's the word that you hear often in Australia about um, our people, but it. It's actually an attitude across the globe. The yeah. the commitment to discuss what that is and mean and 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 learn that that's not the case is actually there's more of an appetite for that over there. And I guess that's where the you know we talk about skills for students and children in the future. It is cultural intelligence. Yeah. It is about understanding. Um, or having an appetite or a drive to include people, to be able to have diverse voices at a table, um, to be able to, you know, understand and listen more. There's also that ways of what we as Indigenous people call ways of being, knowing and doing, or um, the knowledges, the action and the strategies. Yeah. They're all that's wrapped up in that cultural intelligence skill, and I'm not talking about 
building cultural awareness or cultural capability, which is what we throw around in Australia. And that's, again, coming from a very compliance um, tick and flick notion. Yes, we've done some reconciliation tasks. I'm talking about building some authentic skills. And in this globally connected world, we need to be able to do that. And because, you know, we were able to travel to a different country and continent and I was working in the Arctic Circle. What a gift to be able to give the next generation of children. And also at the same time, the byproduct of that is, is using indigenous perspectives and knowledges as a vehicle for change. Yeah. What we could do, right? Yeah, exactly. And I know when we had kids, the one thing we committed to was always traveling um, and going to cultural places of significance every stop of the way for us. But the key driver for that was always around difference and accepting difference yeah. and seeing difference no matter where we were in the world. Like Taylor thinks that there's... Um, and it, I mean, you do see more homeless um, depending on where you go in America. Um, can be quite bad down San Francisco and uh, Los Angeles, you know, out towards Inglewood and just out of downtown, stuff like that. Um, so he thinks that because he's never seen it here, it doesn't exist in Australia, like homelessness, mm. right? But then we're in Toronto and there's quite a few homeless people there, but you don't really see them. Um, same as Vancouver's. There's a stretch there, and it's always, you know, it's blown it. It's not blown out of proportion, but, you know, any homelessness is not good, but there's a stretch, and no one goes there. It's like, it's full of drugs and homeless people. But it's it's paraded now on all these platforms that it's, oh, look at this town, it's so bad. Well, that's one or two streets. Yeah. Vancouver itself is a, such a beautiful, beautiful place. But, yeah, Taylor's thinking that, oh look it only exists here and then but then he got home and we went into the city the other day and holy shit there was homeless people yeah. everywhere in brisbane now that wasn't that wasn't the case 10 years ago yeah and and they're starting to line themselves down through west end here out towards mount Couther, all in tents but now he's more actively aware of what's causing that homelessness and, yeah. you know, we're able to unpack that as a result. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even down to what are the bias or the stereotypes or the assumptions associated with that. Yeah, so his assumptions were they're just lazy. Yeah. Or they, 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 or they want to do that. I'm like, well, no, some of them don't want to do that at mm. all. But he thought that was just an American thing. Correct. But by travelling and seeing it there and now coming home and it's happening here, he's seeing, you know, the effects of probably mental health and yep. drugs and all that sort of stuff that the Indigenous people dealt with um, when they were paid in drugs and alcohol. and it's, it's a real problem now. Like, it's going to take generations to fix this. But I think if we are committed to having the conversations that are hard and difficult, but doing it in a way where we we call people on their shit, we, we say we are going to create a psychologically safe space and then do it and hold people accountable to, to keep that space safe. Um, 
that's how we're going to progress this discussion around Indigenous perspectives, knowledges and people. Um, that's how we're going to progress mental health and all of the other factors that also sit around that. Yeah. Um, the other thing, you know, I'm conscious of time, but I guess the other thing that was really nice to see was, and our kids now see this as normal and it's quite funny, whenever we go into a bookstore overseas, they'll be like, Mum, that's where the black authors are. Yeah. Like, it, it's front and centre. It's, it's, there's an element of pride almost. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, we've got to dig deep into a store to, to find where our black authors section is, if we even have one. Um, yeah, and cartoons are changing. So to include black characters and movies are changing now. Mm. So, which is good. Yeah. Um, yeah, the stereotypes starting to get taken out of those yeah. out of that context. So yeah. yeah. So if um, for our listeners to sort of wrap this up, I guess they're moving towards particularly educators and moving towards 2024 and thinking about what they can do and um, what that's going to look like next year. The first thing they could do is probably look at their own, um, you know, if we talk about cultural intelligence and the first aspect of that is um, appetite or, or drive. If they could reflect on what are their bias, their assumptions and their stereotypes they have of Indigenous people and, um, you know, how or what they do to include diverse uh, voices and uh, individuals in their information diet, I guess, that might be a, a step, the first step that they could do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah on that note, I want to recommend a, um, a resource because I like to you know, make sure that we support um, not just black authors, but I guess encourage you to step out of your comfort zones in you know, non-confronting ways. And, and so while I was overseas in Turtle Island, um, you know, there's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass and that's written by an Indigenous author, Robin Wall Kimura. Um, but if you're anything like me, sometimes you don't have necessarily the cognitive or brain capacity to take in lots of word and text. Um, there is a young adults version of it, and I've been reading that, and it's all about Indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teaching of plants. But it's not so much for me the teaching of the plants, but the different perspectives and reflecting how that aligns to indigenous cultures um, particularly in Australia so that that's a really nice resource it comes in audio and ebook format so we can definitely get that in Australia but yeah, that's the audio for me yeah the audio for you yeah. but I guess it it's it goes along that channel of you know sometimes it's hard to hear these things uh, about our own experiences here in Australia this is an outside external resource that could I guess maybe get you to prompt your thinking about what happens here through this medium though, in yeah. Turtle Island, what yeah. do you think? Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. Um, next podcast... Um, will be a new year. It will be a new year and we're going to talk about the origins of Australia Day and how it's not a day to celebrate and why that might be. 
Okay. Yeah. How's that sound? That sounds fine to me. All right. Well, you wrap um, up. <laughs> yeah, I hope everyone has a well, had a great Christmas or having a great Christmas if you're in Turtle Island, I suppose, because it's still Christmas Day there. Um, and everyone has a great New Year, and we will talk to you in the New Year, I suppose. Yeah. Mari no bajko mujin midiga. So big love to my friends and family. Merry Christmas. And um, oh, I've got to shout out um, Wadjil Wadjil too. Like there was flooding up. Oh, yeah, the community up there. Up there. Yep. I think they had, oh, I think it was close to nearly two metres of rain over a week span so yeah wiped out the whole indigenous uh, community community Wadjil Wadjil I believe yeah so big love and thoughts um, to the mob up there Um, till next time Yano yeah Yano